We are in chapter 7 of Luke, and we are starting a new section here, the compassionate ministry of Jesus, and this is chapter 7, verses 1 through 50. This section marks a return to a geographical ministry whereby one will see Jesus live out in the word and deed the way of thinking advocated in the previous section. He kind of paused, Luke did, to give us the sermon on the plane, to go through what it means to be a true follower of Christ and to live actively in the world. So he kind of paused from the geographical ministry of Jesus' words and deeds and just focused on the theology of Jesus. Now, we're returning back to this theological ministry, or sorry, geographical ministry. Luke returns to the message that he began in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. First, Jesus' ministry is about the release of captives, articulated in Isaiah 61. Second, Jesus' prophetic ministry is also for the Gentiles, like Elijah and Elisha went to the Gentiles. And third, Jesus will minister to a widow and her son just as Elijah and Elisha did. Jesus' identity will be developed among the people. And even more, he will be known as a friend of the tax collectors and sinners. So we see this continuation. Chapter 7, verse 1. After Jesus had finished teaching all this to the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave who was highly regarded, but was who was sick and at the point of death. Then the centurion heard about Jesus. He sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. And when he came to Jesus, they urged him earnestly, He is worthy to have you this for him. He is worthy to have you do this for him, because he loves our nation, and even built a synagogue. So Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not presume to come to you. Instead, say the word, and my servant must be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes to my slave. Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He turned and said to the crowd that followed him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave well. Jesus is now beginning to move to the Gentiles. And we're already seeing kind of that a little bit, but this is one of the clearest cases of this distinction beginning to be made, that he's going to the Gentiles as well. It is very important to understand that though Luke is making the point through Isaiah 61 that we saw Jesus read from in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus come for the poor, that he's come for the captive, that he's come for the, the socially marginalized, that he's come for the sick and all those, the lower class, those who have no social status, those who have been socially and culturally marginalized. The life of Jesus also makes it clear that he's also interested in the rich. It is not completely that the rich have had their day and he's going to the poor. It's not that there is no place for the rich to repent and only the poor can It's just that typically those who are wealthy and powerful and have a high social status don't see their need for Jesus and are not as likely to respond as those who have been oppressed. 
Likewise, those who are oppressed need the release more than those who are not oppressed. And we've already made this point. But we also can't swing to this other pendulum where down with the rich and down with the poor and God doesn't want anything to do with them because that's not true either. The fact that he is going to the Roman centurion, you don't get any more powerful and oppressive and sadistic than a Roman centurion. He's the head of a multi-hundred legion of people. He's a commander. He's probably done crucifixions at some point because that's where you start off low in the totem pole is doing crucifixions and guard duties and flogging. And then he's moved up his ranks. He's gone off and conquered nations. He shackled people and enslaved them. He's robbed people of their homes and lands, killed women and children for the name of Rome. So you don't get any more of an oppressive, powerful man than the, the government itself, than a Roman centurion. And yet Jesus is interested in it. And in fact, he's going to give this man the highest commendation for his faith. And we're going to continue to see this. He's going, he went to Levi, the rich tax collector. He was a rich and oppressive. He, he, he goes to the Pharisees' home and he hangs out with them, that kind of stuff. So we, we can't pendulum swing to the other end and say he does not interest in them or that it's all just about destroy them. It's just that they're the least likely usually to come to God. And he's more interested in those who see their needs. And here, the centurion shows that even a wealthy can see their needs. Because we also know that many wealthy families are oppressed, just in different ways. And so this centurion sees this, and he sees, hears of Jesus, and all we're told that he's already a God-fearer. We don't know exactly what a God-fearer means, if that's full-blown conversion to Judaism, has he been circumcised, all that kind of stuff. That, that word is used by Luke in a very general way. If he said proselytizer, it would be very clear that he has made the commitment to kind of jump in. But God-fearer is not clear. So all we know is he's, he's, he's expressed interest in the faith of Judaism. He's interested in Yahweh, the God of the First Testament, so much so that he has built the synagogue for them. And so he is a man who's showing his faith in this God of the First Testament. And he sees the connection between Yahweh and Jesus. And he wants his slave to be interested, which shows that he also cares about his slave. It's interesting that the Jews immediately come to Jesus and says, This man is worthy, for he has given us lots of money. And he has done these great works for our community. They think like the Pharisees. Remember, if the Pharisees are your teachers and you think they are the righteous example of faith, then you're going to think and act like them if they have been teaching you for your entire life. So they are also about social status and scorekeeping. And they're like, look, this, we're in his debt. This would be like a good thing to kind of get us out of his debt as Jews. So Jesus goes, but not because of the argument. He goes because of the man's faith. And this will become clear later. So he begins to go, and when the centurion finds out that Jesus is coming, he says, I am not worthy. Now this is huge, because the centurion, like Paul, when he writes his letters, like I was the greatest of them all, he has every right to list all of his credentials and rankings off. In fact, he has every right to not send a messenger at all to Jesus and just expect him to keep coming. Yet he sees himself as not worthy in faith, not worthy in his, his own sinful nature. And so this is the contrast. 
But he goes even further and recognizes the authority of Jesus in a way that not even the Jews have recognized as authority. He says, look, I know what it's like to have authority. And when I give a command, people do it. They respond. I don't have to go over there and keep on watching them and micromanaging because they know my authority. They know what I'm capable of doing. And when I say do it, they do it even when I'm not watching them. And therefore, Jesus, you don't need to come here. I'm not worthy. I acknowledge your third authority so great that you can move creation, to so, so to speak, in order to heal my slave. Now, that's incredible. Because this isn't just faith in Jesus. This isn't just him as a miracle worker. For this centurion, Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He sees Christ as authoritative over creation. Either as God's representative or somehow more connected to God. Now, remember, the centurion would have less of a hurdle to jump over seeing Jesus God. I'm not saying he does see Jesus God. I have no idea. But for the Jews, it would be a huge problem because God would pounded into their minds for years that man is not a God and God is not like a man. But the centurion thinks Hercules is a God. Perseus is a God. In fact, the mystery religions are rising up at this time period where you can make yourself a God through secret knowledge. So this wouldn't be hard for him to jump to that next conclusion. So he sees Jesus with a greater authority than any others have seen and where everybody was begging for miracles he's not going to that he's going for authority and when everybody needs to see a proof he says i don't even need you to come into my house and so this faith is incredible so this jesus responds and says i tell you that not even israel have i found such faith this is the first of jesus multiple um praises for the gentiles having greater faith than the jews and what it's showing is that when he said to the people of Nazareth, I tell you that not even the people in Elijah's time accepted him. Rather, Elijah went to the Gentiles instead, including a Syrian soldier by the name of Naaman. So now Jesus is living that out. He's making clear that the Gentiles are accepting more than the Jews, like he told his own people in his own village, but also that he intends to go to the Gentiles just as, as much as any other people group. This is powerful. This is powerful because Jesus is doing what they should have done all along to bend a light to the world. And not just to this little corner that is worthy of his light, but the entire world. So, chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples in a large crowd went with him. And as he approached the town gate, a man who had died was being carried out. The only, the only son of his mother, who was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the briar, the funeral possession of the coffin, and those who carried it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. So the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back, gave him back to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they began to glorify God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us, and God has come to help his people. This report about Jesus circulated throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. Now he comes to the village of Nan. Nan is a dinky little town. It's a blip on the map. 
and there's this funeral procession. And the irony is, as in one way going into the city, Jesus brings a huge crowd of people celebrating and hanging to his words, and they're joyful and they're excited and they're clamoring him. As they then cross paths going the opposite direction, one of death and mourning and sadness and deep sadness because this woman's already lost her husband and now her child. And so this also reminds us of Elijah with the widow's son. And so the son is dead. This is the one of the only times that Jesus is not begged to do a miracle, not begged to do a healing. He, he is not given an argument for why this should happen. He's not doing it to prove some theological teaching that he gave and why he has the authority to say what he is, the Son of Man. He just merely is moved by his compassion. There's no teaching here that needs to be validated. There's no claim to Godhood that needs to be validated in front of the Pharisees. And there's no begging of a miracle. He simply goes up and he heals purely out of compassion. And he just simply speaks to the boy and says, get up. And then he gives him back to the mother. And this is powerful because he touches the funeral procession, which would make him unclean. And so we've already seen this with leprosy, where he touched the leprous man and he is not made unclean. Instead, he is holy and makes other things holy and therefore needs no cleansing ceremony. But leprosy is one thing, but now we're talking about total death. Something that someone has been dead for at least three days. They would not bury you for three days because they believe that the spirit did not leave the body for until at least the, the third day or fourth day. So this is a rotting corpse. You don't get any more unclean than a rotting corpse. And so he is touching him and he's bringing him back to life. And yet he does not become unclean. The boy becomes clean and healed completely. And so Jesus continues to show that he's picking up where Elijah and Elisha had left off in their ministries. So chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples informed him all these things. So John called two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? So John is obviously having doubts now. He's been ministering, he's been discipling, he's in prison, and he is asking, You don't really look like the Messiah so far. Okay, because John, even though he is the great prophet of the First Testament, who fingered Jesus as the Messiah, also is a human who does not have perfect theology and has not completely seen everything the way it should be. And he's probably expecting Jesus to be a political conquest as well. Now, he probably sees Jesus more as a healer and miracle worker as well than probably everybody else. But he also wants a military conquest. Remember, his head is on the line, literally. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist, baptizer, has sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and granted sight to many who were blind. So he answered them, Go, tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Blesses anyone who takes no offense at me. So Jesus' answer is, What does Scripture say? And what are you seeing me do? John, you know the prophets better than anyone else. And you are the one who is called from the wilderness. 
And that passage in Isaiah immediately goes on to talk about that the one that he proclaims will heal and set the captives free and all that kind of stuff. You know this, and you have never seen anything like this. And the history of Judaism has never been recorded ever in the Bible. I am not just like Elijah and Elisha. I am doing miracles. I am preaching the word of God. I am going to the Gentiles, and the Jews are rejecting me. But I am not just another Elijah and Elisha. I am going way beyond them in a way that they have never done ministry before. And that's his answer. Look to the word of God and look to what you're seeing. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go to see? A man dressed in fancy clothes? Look, those who wear fancy clothes and live in luxury are in king's courts. And what did you go to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. So Jesus must have gotten a vibe from the crowd. That, wait a minute, John is doubting this man? Maybe we should doubt him as well. Or what? John's faith is not good enough to really truly see what is happening except it? And you don't get it right off from the bat here, but you do get it as he goes deeper into his dialogue. Um, um, that maybe they were questioning, or maybe he was afraid that they would question John as a man of God and whether he's valid. Maybe if John has doubts or is not a great man of faith, then maybe what I'm following is not legit either. And so Jesus addresses that. Now he says, what did you go out in the wilderness? Look, you left your homes and your comfort and you left your villages and you walked way out into the wilderness where it's not comfortable, it's not nice. And you walked towards the Jordan where the Qumran is, where it's really hot and miserable. And you stood out there for hours upon hours and you listened to John the baptizer preach. Why did you do that? Why was it worth it to you? Did you go out to see a reed blowing in the wind? Now, with this reference, he's referring to Herod. Because Herod had a, minted a coin, and all of his coins that represented him had a reed on it. It was a reed. He did this because the Romans often minted their own faces on their coins, but Herod desperately wanted the Jews to like him. Now, once again, we talked about this. He didn't want them to like him because he had low self-esteem, really wanted a lot of good friends. He wanted them to like him because the more they liked him, the less they rebelled and the less he had to put it down, and the more he could eat, drink, and be merry. He did not do a graven image on his coins, just so he wouldn't make them mad. He was a, he was a corrupt, evil, sadistic ruler, but he was a very intelligent, wise ruler and savvy. He had a reed. And so he said, did you go to see a wheat reed waving in the wind, meaning being blown this way or that and that, meaning that Herod is not actually very stable and he just goes one way or the other, whatever is good for him, and he's untrustworthy? Did you go see a fancy man dressed in clothes, some wealthy person? No, you went to see a prophet and the greatest of the prophets. That's what attracted you. That's what you went to see. That's who he is. Don't question him. This is the one whom is written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare a way before you. This is a reference back to Malachi 3. I tell you, among those who are born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the one who is laced in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He's making it very clear that there is no one who is greater than John, according to the Mosaic Covenant. Don't question him. Don't doubt him. Don't think that because he has doubts that everything he said is no longer legitimate. 
don't question the God that he serves as a result of that. This man is a truly great man. However, he is the greatest in the old covenant kingdom. But I'm bringing new covenant. And I tell you the least of those in the new covenant is greater than John, who is the greatest of the old covenant. Because no matter how great John is, he still does not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in him and can actually know God's will at any moment like you will be able to in the new covenant. I will give you a far greater access to God than John ever had. John other than probably Moses, is the greatest access. Maybe even greater if you want to take this, he's the greatest even seriously. But then you've got to vie with numbers who says that Moses is But Either way, the two of them are greater than anybody else. But the access of God, to God that they have is nothing compared to the access that Christ is going to give you to God. And that's the point that Jesus is making. All the people who heard this, even the tax collectors, acknowledged God's justice because they had been baptized by, with John's baptism. However, the Pharisees and the experts in the religious law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So remember, John made it very clear, the only way to escape the judgment of God is to repent and be baptized. And so Luke is making it very clear that the Pharisees are rejecting God's plan for their life because they refuse to repent. They refuse to see their, see their need for God and repent and go to him. To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you, yet you did not dance. We wailed in mourning, yet you did not weep. For John the baptizer has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by her children. Jesus turns on the Pharisees, and he goes straight for their neck. He says, No one can make you happy. You have set these expectations rules so high that nobody can meet them. And not only that, they're constantly changing in flux all the time that nobody will ever, you will never accept any prophet of God ever. Because John came abstaining from everything. He lived a life of asceticism, denying himself abundance of food and clothing and shelter and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And he refused to drink alcohol. He refused to dance and celebrate even the festivals of God. And you're like, oh, he has a demon and he's a crazy man. He fasted better than any of you guys. Then I come, and I come celebrating. I join in the festivals, and I hang out with people, and I smile, and, and I, I dance to music, and, and I sing the praises of God. And you're like, oh, no, this man is a glutton and a drunk. Even though the Pharisees drink alcohol, too. He basically says it doesn't matter. You're never happy. I mean, you eat your own, probably. But I tell you, wisdom is vindicated by her children. When the years go by and you see the fruit of your lives in contrast to the fruit of the people of the new covenant, you will see what was truly the wise path. Which one was the wiser? I'm telling you right now, I and John are the correct path, not you. And one day you will see the wisdom in choosing me and not your power because your fruit will be rotten 
and it will be cut off from you. And the fruit of these people who are coming to me, they will thrive and they will live and they will be vindicated. I will be vindicated. The word of God will be vindicated. This is the point that Jesus is making. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with them. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Then the woman of that town, who was a sinner, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. And as she stood behind him, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with perfumed oil. Now, when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, and that she is a sinner. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, Say it, teacher. The scene here is that Jesus had been invited to the house of the, the Pharisee, and he accepted it. Remember, Jesus eats with the tax collectors, but he also eats with the rich and the oppressive. And the ones who are even trying to string him up by the neck, so to speak. He's willing to go to all people. He was invited. He's willing to go. There's at least an open ear to him. Maybe he has an agenda to trick him or deceive him. But Simon is invited. This Pharisee is invited him in. And this woman comes in. According to Jewish customs, it is not uncommon for the wealthy to allow the poor people to just come into their house and eat with them in a lower kind of picking it up off of the leftover tables kind of a way. In the ancient world, their houses were more open than ours. We like we, we value our privacy and we lock our doors. But in Israel at this time period, they would have open houses so the breeze could come through and their windows would be open and they didn't have glass, they just have shutters. And they would have probably, a, 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 the wealthy especially, would have more than one room. We talked about an old house where it would be divided into three sections, front room, storage room, and the stable in the back. A wealthy person would have some kind of portico out in the front, uh, made of wood or stone, depending on how wealthy they are. And they would, their, their, their dining room would be open to everything. And it, you could just walk by, like um, think of an open, in, open front in restaurant and um, like places in Europe and that kind of stuff. And you could just walk in any time and hear what was going on. So Jesus is there, and most likely people are hearing. And because the Pharisees pride themselves on being compassionate and loving towards people, and specifically in almsgiving, they would take the scraps from the leftovers from their table, and they would put it out on some kind of servant table, and the poor would come in and eat. And the more the, the table was filled with scraps, big scraps, and the more poor people come in, then everybody would be like, look at that Pharisee. He's so awesome and compassionate. They would see that. And so this isn't uncommon. So her just coming in would have not been like weird. Like, what the heck? <laughs> you just came in. Like, if you're just having a dinner night with your friends and drinking wine or whatever, and somebody just walks in the front door, so you'd be like, what? But not here. So she comes in. What she begins to do is scandalous. A woman touching a man that is not her husband or father, especially a man of rabbi teaching status, would have been considered absolutely scandalous, let alone to fondle his feet, um, which feet are like, even today in our culture, a lot of people see feet as erotic in a lot of ways, would be considered incredibly sexual, incredibly scandalous. 
what level would that be? I don't know. We don't know exactly how far to push that scandalous touching. But it would definitely have seen somewhere on the spectrum of being too sexual, too familiar. And then she's crying and wiping with her hair. Hair was considered uh, a deli- um, the, the image of their beauty, their, that kind of stuff. And she's rubbing it over him. And then she's using this perfumed oil, which is usually used in order to make herself more attractive or smell better, which is usually only what the rich would wear or the prostitutes. And she doesn't seem to be the wealthy or used for burial, which is ironic foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. He's being prepared for his burial. And so she's doing this and Simon's like horrified. This would be like having a belly dancer come in your house or something like that and, and dancing in front of this Pharisee. And he would be, he's horrified by this. Like, what the heck? First of all, why, why are you allowing this woman to act like this? And second, don't you know what kind of a woman this is? And the fact that he says it that way implies that she probably was a prostitute of some kind. This is not Mary Magdalene. A lot of people have compressed Mary Magdalene and this woman together, but it's not her. He's horrified. And he wants Jesus to do the right thing and put her in the right place and stop this, especially in his own house. So Jesus responds and says, A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, Suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time that I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she was anointed my feet in perfumed oil. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Thus she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with them began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Which we already addressed that with the paralytic man. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus tells a parable of two people being, their debts being canceled. One is far greater than the other one. And he asked Simon a simple question. Who would love, who's going to be more appreciative? Well, obviously the greater debt that has been canceled. Jesus turns to him and says, Look, Simon, you want to talk about social faux pas? You, as the host, was supposed to bring a servant in and whatnot. Granted, Simon would have never done any of this. He would have had a servant do it. But he didn't have this. No one washed my feet. This is what's required of you as the host. Of the guests, you did not anoint me. That's required. You you did not kiss me on the cheek with greeting, which says that Simon really wasn't inviting Jesus out of goodwill. Simon was inviting Jesus in order to keep score and trap him in some kind of way because he wasn't even willing to do treat him like a guest. And so he says, "Look, social faux pas, you're doing it big time." How dare you judge this woman for her social faux pas when you have your own before me, a a, a rabbi that is a teacher among you. Yet this woman, who you look down on, hasn't stopped doing any of this stuff. And yet it's not even her job because she's neither the host 
nor greater than me inviting me in. She has forgiven of much. Her sins are far greater. This is why I accept her. Because of her faith. Because she knows who she is in relation to me. Because she is trusting in me more than social, cultural requirements. I used to think that when Jesus said this, it meant like the hell's angels, biker, drinker, drug addict, nymphomaniac who like killed people in bar fights. When they accepted Christ and came to Christ, they were going to like be forgiven a far greater and love God more than just like some leave it to beaver kind of a kid who grew up in a home and had a good life. And the worst thing he ever did was stole like a candy bar and tell a few fibs. And then he comes to Christ. And I used to think that like, well, yeah, it doesn't say like her sins are many and she's forgiven of much. And therefore she will love me more. But as I got older and as I read this more and more and I began to understand the heart of God more and I began to understand the depravity of humanity and you can ask a lot of people at my school and stuff, I have a very highly developed understanding of the depravity of humanity. Um, I begin to realize that no, 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 no. We're all the hell's angels, drinking, smoking, nymphomaniac, serial killers, so to speak. Okay, we are in our hearts. If you really take Jesus seriously, like I, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, you have anger in your heart. What is going in our minds and that kind of stuff. And, what, and, we're in, and the other thing is the minute you say, oh, I can never do that. That is absolute arrogance and naive. Because the minute you say, oh, I can never do that. The one thing that you're never going to do is set up boundaries and protection and accountability from never doing that. And none of us know what we're capable of until we're put in that exact scenario. And we're put in that place of that person. Okay, maybe you were in the exact same position as they were and you didn't do it. But that's not something to brag about because that doesn't mean that you'll never do it again the 50th million time that you're placed in that situation. The realization that I am capable of everything. I am capable of homosexuality. I'm capable of murder. I'm capable of an affair. I'm capable of, I'm capable of being a serial killer, of putting in the right places and the right pressures put on me. And I have the right brokenness in my life. And it's only when I realize that in my heart and my mind there's no difference between me and them, then do I really see my need for Jesus. Not in a behavioralistic kind of a sense, but in my heart and what I am without Christ sense. And that what I'm capable of doing if, I, if all my entire life was crushed around me and I was tempted to fight tooth and nail for my survival. Okay, Only then do I realize that there's no difference between me and them? Then I realize that I have been forgiven of much. And then I love much. And that's the point that Jesus is making. It's not that certain people will love him and be more on fire for Christ than others because they've had a worse past. It's that when you, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me. When you truly dive into the darkness of your soul and your heart and your mind and do not run away in fear and keep pressing in to see who you really are, then you realize, holy crap, I have been forgiven of much. That God even loves me. And then the arrogance, not all, even the worst people can still be arrogant. But it's harder to be prideful 
It's harder to see yourself better than others. It's hard to look down upon them and be like, oh, you prostitute or you sexual immoral, immoral person. It's harder because you realize what you're capable of. And this is what Jesus is saying. When you think, like, I remember when this person had multiple affairs and, like, people found out about it and they were horrified and they're like, I can't believe that you da 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 And somebody said, well, we're all sinners. And they're like, well, th- the biggest thing that I've ever struggled with is an overeating thing. And I was like, really? Seriously? That's been your biggest struggle is overeating? Well, okay, let's say that is. We can dive in deeper into that and realize that overeating is actually not your biggest struggle. It's the fact that you're not trusting in God for your self-image or to handle your problems and your sadness and depression. And now you're going to a drug. It may not be cocaine, but it is food in order to medicate yourself. And then you've got this image thing where you have to look a certain way. And if you don't meet this certain image, and then people, I mean, we, I mean, if you really start peeling the layers back, we can go way deeper than you eat way too much ice cream on Friday nights. When you go deeper in and realize this isn't just behavior, there's something way deeper down here. And at the base of it, it's always idolatry. It's always a lack of trust in God. And it's always you looking to yourself or to the world to meet your happiness and fulfillment rather than God. And this, this is what Christ is talking about. I don't care about our past. All I care about is our faith. All I care about is our faith. She loves me much because she gets who she is without me. And now she knows who she is with me. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. For Jesus, he keeps bucking against the social standards. Simon was quick to condemn him for not fitting the social customs. Here's what's interesting, too. That entire time, it says that Jesus turned to face the woman, meaning that he put his back to Simon. And the entire time he's talking to Simon, he's not even looking at Simon. He's looking at the woman. Now, you could read this as he's rejecting Simon, but I don't think that's the case. What it most likely is happening is he's forcing Simon to look at what Jesus is looking at. If he looked at Simon, then Simon would, have to, would make eye contact with him. And the woman is just in the gray and the, the purple of his vision. And he, doesn't have to, he still doesn't have to acknowledge her. What he's doing is forcing Simon to look the way that Jesus is. He, looking in the back of the head is weird. It's uncomfortable when you're talking to people and people are talking to you. Instead, he has to look somewhere else. But if you're being condemned in front of a whole group of people, you don't want to make eye contact with other people either. We all know what that's like when somebody greater is like rebuking you and you look around the other people. You don't want, so the only thing that's left to look at is either the floor or her. And so now he has to see her. And as Jesus is talking, he now has to see her as a human. Now, does he? I don't know. But it's, that's what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And so what Jesus is saying is that your problem, Simon, is you're not accepting of her. She has found that she needs to accept me. I've accepted her. You're not accepting of her. So what Jesus is saying is that no longer need forgiveness, but she needs to be accepted into the community. She has already been forgiven. Her sins have already been dealt with. What needs to happen now is she needs to be accepted into the community. Not as she used to do that, or, oh my goodness, I wonder when she's going to mess up and go back to that again. And not as, oh, she's an inferior and came late to the game, 
or she, yeah, we'll accept her, but she's a lower status, but as a full-blown equal member of the community. And this is what Jesus is about. You're going to see this over and over again. He's not just interested in forgiving you of your sins and accepting you into him. He's also very interested in you being accepted into the kingdom of God and the community of believers. That's why there is absolutely no room for racism, prejudice, snobbery, entitlement over anybody in the body of Christ. Yes, when people do things, you are to rebuke them in love, but not rejection and not social greaterness or any of that kind of stuff. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's all about getting them back into the community of God as well, on equal standing. 